conversations. And if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to take it, uh, turn to it, open it up, fire it up, whatever you need to do. We're in the book of Exodus. Uh, Sarah said earlier on, we've been away for the past couple of weeks. We spent uh, two weeks in the States. Uh, we were there at an organic outreach conference uh, with Kevin and Sherry Hahn. He had the privilege of spending time with Lee and Leslie Strobel. He wrote the book Case for Christ. In fact, uh, we watched the movie which has been made of his life, and he was there, and at the end of it, he stood up and gave a gospel appeal and into the Q&A session. It was one of the most profound moments of, of listening to the power of God work in a person's life, I've heard. Uh, he's written another book, spent the last two years researching miracles. He's written a book, The Case for Miracles. Uh, there's word out there which there is likely to be a movie or a documentary coming out on that in the next couple of years. I've encouraged you to get hold of it. It's brilliant. Um, I also asked him if he'd come from New Zealand, and I'm working on that, so we'll see what we can do. Uh, we were there, and then uh, we came home and and uh, went straight up to uh, the Wairarapa and ran a two-day uh, retreat for a bunch of pastors around New Zealand as part of the Living Stones Network, and that was fantastic. And uh, we, we spent time together in worship and prayer and, uh, and food and fellowship and fun, and it was great. And I came home, and uh, this morning I went and got on my bathroom scales, and uh, <laughs> they're now lying. Yeah. And I, I think it's probably going to take me a month or two to retrain my bathroom scales to tell the truth. So, um, yeah, um, anyway, I won't stand sideways. Exodus. <laughs> Exodus chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all in the next 25 minutes. This is the plagues of Egypt. Uh, it's one of those uh, topics, one of those subjects which uh, raises a lot of questions. And so this morning I want to look at what does it take to walk in freedom? Because this is where the plagues get us. And the text furnishes that question with a number of answers and principles. And as we go through this, we're working our way through the book of Exodus, which is the story of the birth of a nation. Israel, you see, had been in Egypt by this stage for 400 years. They started as a family. It was a family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had moved from Canaan into um, Egypt to survive a famine that was raging the Middle Eastern world. And this family was given the land of Goshen to settle in, and it was given to them by the foreign rulers who were ruling Egypt at the time of um, Jacob and Joseph. And they were there in Goshen to tend their flocks and to ride out the famine. Well, many generations passed, and the family grew into a nation. And at some point in the 400 years... Egypt gained control of its own land and began to purge the land of foreign influence. So they started their ethnic cleansing regime with slavery, with oppression, with murder, with infanticide. The treatment of people that would have rivaled Nazi Germany or Syria or a host of other modern-day nations that are infamous for atrocities against humanity. However, this was not a five-year killing spree, nor a 10-year one, nor a 20-year one. If it were on the world stage today, Egypt would be the subject of United Nations sanctions and global condemnation for over 200 years of crimes against humanity. It would be the nation that commentators would be saying, where is the justice 
It would be the situation that people would point to who like to say, if there is a God, why doesn't he do something about the suffering of those people? Well, Israel was the nation that was held in slavery. Their spirit is broken. Their identity is at best slave. They have in their memory the name of their God as the God who provides, but they can't see any provision. In fact, 400 years of living under the control of the Egyptian religious system quite possibly leads many of them to think that the gods of Egypt really are in control. Yet they keep crying out to El Shaddai, the God who provides. And El Shaddai speaks to Moses and tells him that they will soon know him by a different name, Exodus chapter 6. And last week you talked through this, Exodus chapter 6 verse 2. Then God spoke to Moses telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. But I was not known to them by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, the God who fulfills his promises. The people cried out, and God heard, God saw, and he knew. And he began raising up a leader. This leader was called Moses, and it would take God 80 years to prepare him. God's timing is never our timing. Moses' first 40 years were spent in the house of Pharaoh being educated in Egyptian ways, and it's no stretch to conclude that those times were violent and oppressive. The first account we have of Moses fighting for justice while it saw him murder an Egyptian. And I suspect he was just simply living out the values and the ways of the rulers of the time. It was probably not a second thought to him. It would have been normal behavior, yet it was also the beginning of his transformation into the leader who would eventually lead the nation out of the land. And so Moses' second 40 years was spent in the desert, preparing in the classroom, not of the Egyptians, but in the classroom of God. And he returns to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh, requesting that Moses' people, the Israelites, are let go so that they can hold a festival in the wilderness. Well, the response from Pharaoh was to increase the workload. And if they had time to think about a festival, Pharaoh was thinking, well, then they're not working hard enough. So let's increase their workload. Well, Pharaoh is the last character in this story, the leader of Egypt, the person with the power to let the people go or not. Biblically, he's famous for having had his heart hardened by God so that God could pour out his anger and wrath on the Egyptian people, or so we might believe. Well, today, I'm not going to teach systematically and verse by verse through every single plague. You will be pleased to know. But I want to give you some tools to help you understand and to read the plagues section of Exodus. And then I want to draw from it a couple of lessons that help us walk in freedom today. So with that in mind, we are going to read a little bit of it, starting in Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. It goes like this. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, Since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, 
and Aaron your brother will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron your brother must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went on, went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. And they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff and it became a servant, but serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them. As the Lord said. What's the deal with Pharaoh's hard heart? Did Pharaoh have a choice or was he simply a a puppet on a cosmic string? Yeah, when you read through the plagues and they start in the very next verse, the first interactions that you have with Pharaoh is that Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart. In fact, Reading through the accounts of the plague, the first five reactions that Pharaoh has, God's got nothing to do with his choice. It's all his own choice. He chooses to harden his heart. His heart, his heart was hard. It's only when you get to the sixth plague that then it says that God hardened his heart. Or to put it another way, God gave him over to the logical outworking of his own choices and in so doing hardened his heart. So how does that work? Well, I don't know about you, but I see that like depressingly obvious in my own life. I see the way that my choices either establish a softness or a hardness of heart over time. I see how you can do that in a marriage. I see how you can do that with your children. I see how you can do that with your church. I see that how you can do that with your job. You could do it with your country. You could do it with anything. By beginning to make a choice to either be toward or against something, if you continue to make that choice, eventually your heart is either hard towards it and nothing bar nothing that is done can change your mind or it is soft. I think this is exactly what happened here with Pharaoh. And God in his sovereign foreknowledge knew. And so we have it, which of course was written after the fact, that God would harden his heart. But the journey to get there was entirely his own choice. So what purpose then did the plagues have? Well, a couple of things here. Firstly, the plagues were an act of judgment on a nation that was acting unjustly. You know, if God is a God of justice, then there comes a time when justice must be delivered. And history sees this occur here to the Egyptians and If you want to say, well, did he only pick on the Egyptians? No, he didn't. Later on to the inhabitants of Canaan, then even to the nation of Israel, 
all of whom determined to ignore God's invitation to live justly and to walk humbly before their God. The question is, does God still do this? And while we might be hard-pressed to find such a concentrated period of extraordinary events in history like the Egyptian plagues, the Bible does tell us that there will be a period of time to come when the Lord will pour out expressions of judgment on the nations of the earth prior to his return to establish his kingdom. You know, the book of Revelation talks about this, and frankly, you read the the book of Revelation and the judgments that are there, and it makes the ten plagues of Egypt pale into insignificance. But you know the theme that resounds throughout eternity in heaven and all of creation, while all that's going on, you find it in Revelation chapter 16, verse 5 to 7. You are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was because you've sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink as their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and are just. Friends, We don't serve a small deity. We serve the creator of the universe who is established in holiness and love and justice and righteousness. And in the same way that we feel aggrieved when at a personal level we see injustice ignored, How could we then turn around to God and say, would you please ignore the injustices of the nations? It just doesn't make logical sense. And so we serve a God who is interested and who looks for justice and ultimately mets out justice on all of his creation. The plagues are an act of judgment on a nation that was acting unjustly. Secondly, the plagues exposed and disarmed the gods of Egypt. You know, to shock the Egyptians, and in particular to shock Pharaoh, that the gods he serves and believes in are no match for the one true God. This is a power encounter. This is God stepping up to the plate and saying, I just want to show you who God really is. The plagues also provided to the Israelites who for 400 years had had little more than a promise of provision that Yahweh, the God who delivers on his promises, is the most powerful and is worthy of worship and is worthy of obedience. And so we have in these plagues, we have a systematic dealing to all of the gods, all of the deities of Egypt. Let me illustrate this by a couple of them. The first plague is the plague of the Nile River turning to blood. Um, one before that, we've got a little picture of, a, of the Nile River, I think. Here we go. Back one? There we go. There we go. Look at that. Right, so here's, here's, here's an Egyptian hieroglyphic, and you've got there the Nile River down the bottom, and you've got all the gods there in the middle. The Nile River was controlled by the gods, according to the Egyptians. The annual flooding, and the way it worked, is the Nile River would flood on an annual basis, and that would then irrigate the land around it, which meant that they could then grow their crops, which meant that they could then sell their crops, and they would have economic stability, and they would have prosperity, and lands would be good, and life would be wonderful, all because of the provision of the gods of the Nile. Now, when this security 
was undermined when a servant of Yahweh said to Pharaoh, said, I'm going to turn your river into blood. Their first response to that will be, well, that can't happen because our gods are all powerful. And when they saw the blood going down the river, that would immediately not raise a question around, well, what happened there? It would be, wait a minute, is there a more powerful God? And the second question that they would then have is, well, what about our economic security? And what about our prosperity? And what about the way our life lives? Hmm. Maybe they're not as secure as they thought. It's interesting, isn't it? Can you see the shadows of application into our own life? Yeah, we have gods that we serve that tend to provide economic security and prosperity and a way of life and a culture of life and every now and then something happens which seems to rock that and maybe makes us feel a little less secure than what we thought. I wonder what gods we serve. The second one was the frog's plague and here's this lovely little picture there. That's a picture of the goddess Hequet or Heget or there's a number of different ways you could pronounce her name. She was the goddess of fertility and life. She's depicted as a woman with a frog's head. Now, because of that, frogs were therefore seen as sacred animals with divine power. And so, as in today, in in, in Hindu countries, um, cows are sacred. In Egypt, frogs were sacred, right? And so, if you saw one, you weren't allowed to kick it, kill it, fry it, eat it, or do anything else like that. And the goddess Hequet, she would protect women while they were in labor, And women would often wear a a metal armband with a frog on it while they were in labor, evoking her powers to protect them while they were laboring before they gave birth. And they would deliver the babies in their bedrooms. In fact, the midwives were known as the servants of Hequet. Well, this plague unleashes the frogs. And it's as though God was saying, you're worshiping frogs as deities. Well, you worship them, you can have them. And here they come. And they come up out of the Nile. And it's interesting, when you go through there, they went into every place, including the place they were supposed to protect, because it's the only place where the plagues talk about going into the bedroom. And what God's saying here is, you know what? You think these are good? Let me unleash them on you and just show you what a mess that makes of your life. And Doesn't that happen with us too? Things we worship, things we want, things we think are good, sin that we just want to dabble with. Sometimes God will say, well, you know what, if that's what you want, sometimes in his grace he says, well, have it. You're not learning the other way. Have it. And what a mess that sometimes creates in our lives. Pharaoh's plea to have them removed was to have these gods return to where they belong back in the river. Perhaps there is a lesson here that those things we worship have a habit of wanting more of our life than we'd care to give them. The seventh and eighth, seventh, sorry, and ninth plague, like I say, I'm jumping around, I'm just going to do these four, and uh, then you can go through and work on the rest and, and uh, discover the wonders of Hebrews, Hebrew gods and goddesses. And Hebrews, did I say Hebrew? Yeah, Egyptian. Egyptian. Okay. The hail and the darkness of the land. The seventh plague was the plague of hail. 
And the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. Let me introduce you to the goddess Nut. She is one of the most important goddesses in Egypt. She's represented as a dark, a black or midnight blue-skinned woman standing on all fours whose fingers and toes touch the horizon. She's leaning over her husband called Geb, who is lying down, and he is known as Earth, and she is the heavens or sky. Her body is covered with stars, and it was believed by the Egyptians that at night, Nut and Geb would meet as the goddess comes down from the sky, and as they meet, it would cause darkness. Well, during storms, Nut gets a little closer to Geb, causing weather disturbances. And don't let your thoughts go any further. <laughs> Their father, Shu, by the orders of the sun god Ra, separates them from what would be a tight eternal embrace. And it was thought that if Shu relents on his job of keeping them separate, that the eternal order would be disrupted, causing unbelievable chaos. Now, when Moses speaks on behalf of Yahweh and says, there will be hail, what the Egyptian mind all of a sudden thought was, oh my goodness, Shu has lost control of Nut and Geb. The gods are out of control. There is chaos going on. And when darkness happened in the middle of the day, they're not imagining something else. They're imagining that these gods are completely out of control and that there is nothing going on which is good. And when Moses stands and causes it to stop, they're looking at this going, there is a God who is more powerful than ours. And they strike a theological crisis. Alongside that, the Israelites are growing in confidence that the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, is not only the God who provides but he is also Yahweh, the God who does what he promises. Deliverance is coming. And in this cosmic battle, which at the end of the day is no battle at all, because God is, and as God is, he is all-powerful. And there is nothing that can stand against him. And he is calling his people out of Egypt and into life to walk free. And the battle of the plagues, the next week we do the tenth. And we'll talk about that some more and we'll talk about what happens when, when the angel of death comes across the land. And we'll talk about the Passover. And we'll talk about the protection of the blood. But in these nine, there are a couple of lessons we can learn. The first one as we draw to a close is this. Choose to obey the Lord. You know, the state of your heart 
is determined over time by the choices we make. So choose to obey the Lord. Maybe for you that's choosing to obey him instead of sinning. Maybe for you there are things going on in your life where you're compromising and you you know it and as you look at it closely, you look at it in the light of what we've learned today, you can see your heart getting harder. You find it's easier now to sin than it is to obey. You find it's easier to, to walk away from God than it is to walk toward God. Your heart is getting hard. Maybe your hardness is towards your fellow followers of Jesus. Maybe you're in a situation where, where something has happened and, and you've just withdrawn and you're, fi- you're finding it easier to be distant from followers of Jesus than be close to them. And your heart is becoming hard. Maybe you have a hardness towards the church. Maybe it's a hardness because of decisions you've made and you're not even quite sure where or why. You just have this disdain. You turn up, but not really. Your heart is hard. Yeah, the invitation here is choose to obey the Lord and choose to follow him. You know, any God we worship and Ours, while they're not so much like the Egyptian gods, but ours are things like money and materialism and consumerism and individualism and any other ism that we can possibly think of. They often demand our focus and our loyalty and mess up our sense of what is just and what is right. You know, their gods, the Egyptian gods as well as our gods, need to be defeated with a power encounter and disarmed so that they have no power over us and that we follow completely the Lord who fulfills his promises. You know, there is a wonderful verse in Colossians chapter 2, which talks of the battle. And it goes like this. It says, When we were dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, he made us alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He took us from a place of slavery, enslavement to sin, enslavement to something which while we start off and it feels quite good and and maybe we're being provided for and maybe we can make a nice living in this slave market called sin, but over time, just like with the Israelites in Egypt, over time the true colors of the master are shown. And instead of thinking you have freedom in sin, you actually are enslaved in it. Instead of thinking that you have freedom to do whatever you want, you realize that that is, in fact, total and utter enslavement. And there is, there is no respecter of you as a person. It's simply gobbling you up under its destructive force. And Jesus turns around and he says, you know what, I'm going to take all of that and I'm not going to systematically go through by ten plagues. I'm going to hang on a cross and I'm going to take all of the plagues and everything that was opposed to you and that's written against you, and I'm going to disarm the rulers and authorities, and I'm going to disgrace them publicly. And I'm going to triumph over them at the cross. Yeah, the plagues of Egypt point to the cross of Jesus. And just as God disarmed and made a public spectacle of the gods of Egypt, So Jesus Christ on the cross disarmed and made a public spectacle of Satan who does everything he can 
to enslave you in sin. And so the invitation is the same. Obey him and follow him. Would you stand with me? In this moment, if there has been a a whisper of the Spirit, if there has been a nudge to say, yeah, that in your life, that rings true. Maybe there's some hardness of heart. Maybe there's some coldness towards God. Maybe there is just a sense of, I, I don't even know where I fit in this whole picture yet. Would you right now just bow your head and say, God, here I am. Would you speak to me? Maybe for you there are some there are some gods that you're aware of. There are some things that you realize you're following. You're trusting in. You're finding security because of them. Maybe for you there is a, a moment of looking at this and saying, man, I, there needs to be a power encounter going on in my life. I need to declare that Jesus Christ is more powerful. That he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And right here in this moment, on the basis of Colossians chapter 2, you can turn to those other things that you've been following and obeying or being seduced by or led by, and you can simply turn toward them and say, you know, in the authority of God's word, you are disarmed and disgraced. And in Jesus' name, I choose freedom. I choose life. This is my heart. This is my desire. And we'll just respond and and worship in a moment. At the end of our service, we have a prayer team. There are people up the front on both sides. And they would love to pray with you. And I would encourage you, even, even while we're worshiping, if there are things in your life where you're just sensing the Lord's calling you out and saying, come on, it's time to get this sorted, but don't hold back. Just come and say, can you pray with me? Can you pray for me? I want to walk in that freedom that is only mine in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. and Thank you, Lord, you are, you are not only the God who provides, you are the God who fulfills his promises. And we thank you for the promise of freedom. We thank you for the promise of life. We thank you, Lord, for your power. And so, Father, we ask that you would pour it out on us right now as we seek you and worship in Jesus' name.